This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by shop.fool.com. That's right, shop.fool.com, where our podcast listeners can find all things motley and foolish, from the Invest Better travel mug to the delightful podcasts hoodie. Check us out, shop.fool.com. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. This is the final week of May. This is the last Wednesday of May. It is time for your Rule Breaker Investing mailbag. Now, if you've been with me all month, and I sure hope you have, you know it's what month is it? That's right, it's Conscious Capitalism Month, which comes to an end with this particular podcast, but we'll certainly be reflecting back on some of the conscious learnings that we had together in the month that was. This is a month that maybe had more podcasts from this podcast than any other month. I think we set a new RBI record here, because not only is this the fifth regular podcast. That's right, there were five Wednesdays this May, but we did two extras. So, simple math, five plus two. I think we've brought you seven Rule Breaker Investing podcasts. And right now, if you're about to listen to your seventh, in other words, if you've been with us all the way through, please give yourself six and a half points. Right now, six and a half points from me. Thanks. Of course, the other half point will be given at the end of this podcast if you make it all the way through this mailbag. All right. Well, our mailbag is replete as always. I think I have seven primary points to share with you this particular week, but we're going to start off as I've been doing in recent months with our hot takes. So, this is generally me reacting quickly to short comments typically posted on Twitter. And with this installment of the Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag, the May 2018 edition, with this installment, I'm going to go with a new approach. And that is, for our hot takes, we're going to go formally, very officially, with a last-in, first-out inventory management approach to these hot takes. That's right. So, if you are a student of accounting, you know what LIFO and FIFO are. FIFO, first-in, first-out. LIFO, last-in, first-out. What do these terms mean if you're not into accounting? Well, it generally means as you pick through your inventory and maybe try to put a value on it, you could either look at the first things that ever came into your warehouse or the most recent, latest things that came into your warehouse and go front to back either direction in order to value your inventory. So, we are formally putting in place a last in, first out approach to our hot takes. That means I'll simply be going through whatever's most recent, reacting to whatever we just done on this podcast and go backwards through our hot takes section. So, there you go. A little bit of financial learning. LIFO, wedded to your Rule Breaker Investing hot takes. First one up. And I have to say, this is maybe the saddest that I'll be this week on the podcast, because I got this note from my producer, Rick Engdahl, after having returned, as I just did, from Scandinavia. My family went on a family tour of Norway and Iceland. So, yes, my producer, Rick Engdahl, who takes in all of your tweets and notes to rbi at fool.com and gives them to me a day or two before this podcast. Rick had just sent over this note from Khan Robert Fahm, who's a fellow fool in Oslo, Norway. And he writes, Dear David, I've been a weekly Rule Breaker Investing Podcast listener since the beginning in 2015, and every week I look forward to your next new episode. I am based in Oslo, Norway, which, as it turns out, was our first destination last week. Khan Robert Fahm goes on, 
and was excited to hear in the last podcast that you are returning to Norway for your vacations. If you need any tips or help with anything during your stay in Norway, feel free to contact me. Also, if you want a local guide, in quotes, at least I'll try my best, he says in parentheses, in Oslo, or simply meet over a cup of coffee to discuss stocks, finance, or life in general. I'm on parental leave from work these days, so my 10-month-old daughter and I have plenty of time during the day. Wish you the best of holidays. And so, of course, the reason I'm so sad is because I only got this a week after I returned from Oslo. I want you to know we had a delightful time in your home city. Con, we were at the Vigeland Sculpture Park. We went up to the Olympic ski jump for our overview across the beautiful city that is Oslo, Norway, the capital of Norway, of course. We spent some time obligatorily at the Viking Museum. Not my first time there, but how often do we get to see an actual, real, live Viking longship? And uh, it's the Kontiki Museum as well. I learned a lot about a book I'd never read. A lot of people have read the Kontiki story. My wife had done a primary school report. She wrote her maybe fifth grade report on Kontiki, so we had to go there to the museum. We were staying just across from the beautiful Oslo Opera House, which is designed, I believe, to look like a glacier coming up out of the water. It's white marble and glass, and it's stunning. So we had just a delightful time in Oslo. The truth is, Con Robert Fahm, that I'm not sure we would have even been able to make the time because we were only there for a couple of days and we were pretty fully booked. But that was a very kind offer. I appreciate it. I want you to know I reciprocate. So if you find yourself coming through to Alexandria, Virginia, this goes for all of our listeners. Anytime you want to drop by Fool HQ in the greater Washington, D.C. area, you can always drop us a note. Just drop a note to rbi at fool.com. We do tours and have cups of coffee with our fellow fools, it seems, every week. All right, hot take number two comes from Rebecca Smith, Reb L. Smith PDX on Twitter. Rebecca wrote simply at RBI Podcast, my something blue, referring to something old, something new, something broad, something blue. And I talked about Bluebird Bio, ticker symbol B L U E, as a company that's worth considering for your portfolio or the type of company we should all have a little blue in our portfolio. Rebecca responded by saying, my something blue is edit. That's the ticker symbol for Editas Medicine. I'm a biomedical engineer, Rebecca writes. I know the technology well. It offers profound promise for a changing world. Well, thank you, Rebecca. Next hot take, this one came in from Craig Edwards at CRX Investments on Twitter. At RBI Podcast, congratulations, David G. Fool. Today was one of the greatest comebacks ever on the RBI Podcast. And Craig is referring to the May 9th edition when I reviewed my five thinky stocks and kept the rule breaker investing streak alive. As I reviewed five in a row, it got dark and ugly those first couple. It looked tough, but then the other three had all gone up more than 100%. So thank you. It was a tremendous comeback. And I think everybody knows I'm not this good and the streak will inevitably end. But it's been awfully fun to watch what we've done together here with the five stock samplers. In fact, I should mention that our next review will be on June 20th. I'll be reviewing five stocks riding the bull market, and spoiler alert, things are looking horrific for that one. I think I can almost call the RBI streak dead right now. But we'll see. You never know what's going to happen in the next few weeks. And uh, darn it, if we lose one, well, that shows that we're human, which we very much are human. We're, we're fools over here in Alexandria, Virginia. All right, next two hot takes both react to the May 2nd episode, which kind of kicked off the month when I interviewed Alexander Mokobin and Raj Sisodia of Conscious Capitalism. And a couple of you really loved a few of the things that Raj said. Jummy at Jummy underscore B3AR at Jummy Bear. Jummy, you wrote at RBI Podcast at Conscious Cap. Love this great quote. Quote, 
If you cannot respect the way you earn it, money has no value. And if you cannot use it to make people's lives better, money has no purpose. A beautiful statement by Raj Sasodia. Thanks for catching that one, Jummy. And my friend Paul Hooper at Seljanik on Twitter said, A verbal love letter to what capitalism should be and will be. Quote, this one comes from Raj Sasodia as well. Quote, Business is the ultimate win-win game in the world. The outputs far exceed the inputs. End quote. I love how you phrase that, Paul. A verbal love letter to what capitalism should be and will be. And as we begin to close out our hot takes, this one comes from admittedly last month, but I still wanted to fit it in on this month's show. Reacting to our April blast from the Radio Past episode, Aaron Wieleck was very kind enough to write in, Hey, Dave, Tom, and Mac, the blast from the past episode was wonderful. Thank you for putting this together. I love many of the topics covered by Rule Breaker Investing, but this was easily my favorite. And the reason I'm reading this from Aaron is he calls out my good friend Mac Greer in this note. He said, Mac, a special thanks to you. I imagine it takes a lot of your time to dig through the radio archives. I appreciate the effort you put in. It was truly worth it. Thanks again for the work you all put in, both the podcasts and the newsletters. You truly do educate, amuse, and enrich. Best regards, Aaron Wieleck. Aaron, thank you very much. Mac Greer has been a pleasure to work with these 15 or something like getting near 20 years together. And you're right, Mac put in a lot of time to make that podcast happen. But the good news is, even though we didn't use all of Mac's clips, we're going to come back a little later this summer and do Blast from the Radio Past Volume 2, try to drag my brother back in here. And I know Mac will have five, ten more classic clips queued up for you. And the very last hot take, this one comes from at Deja Vu Sam on Twitter. Sam Acosta, you write simply, You gotta stop with the window crashing sound. All right, so this is a really good opportunity to talk briefly about how we open and close each show. Now, the very wonderful Denise Corsi, who's worked here at The Motley Fool for 10 or so years and does some important work for our asset management sister company, Denise is the one who voices our way in and out of this podcast every week. And I think she recorded it, maybe, help me out here, Rick Gangdahl, maybe in the first week or so that we were doing this, just so we had something. In time for episode one. In time for episode one. And we've never asked Denise to come back and do it again. So we have the same open coming near three years later now that we started with back in the day. And yes, it does include that window crashing sound. So as a man of the people, as someone who will always be swayed by the Vox Populi, I want to put this one out to a Twitter poll in the week ahead. I'm going to ask Ann Henry, who manages our at RBI podcast social account on Twitter, to ask you to poll, should we keep the window crashing sound or should we get rid of the window crashing sound? Are you with Sam Acosta, who says you got to stop with it? Or are you with, I'm seeing right across the transom, my friend Rick Engdahl looking a little sad and weepy if we were to have to get rid of the window crashing sound? It's not a window crashing sound. It is the sound of rules breaking. It is the sound of rules breaking. So, we're going to put it out to you. We want to hear what you think. We may well act on it, so let us know. So, check out our at RBI podcast Twitter account for that poll this week. Please weigh in. I care. All right, let's get started for real now. Rule breaker mailbag item number one. This one comes from John Fitzpatrick. John, on Twitter, you're at I am a Super Ball. 
Congratulations, sir. Not really sure what that means, but it sounds awesome. You write, I believe that I've run an investing course familiar to many Motley Fool subscribers. Try investing on my own and quit when the going gets tough. Get some professional help and acquire an investor's temperament. Grow disenchanted with the costs and performance of mutual funds. Get some knowledge. For me, this was the Motley Fool. Go back to investing on my own in stocks, where I find myself now. John goes on, the past eight years have been exciting as I divest from mutual funds to stocks in this new age of emerging titans. Question. I'm no longer worried that a downturn in the economy will scare me away. Rather, I'm worried that I will become bored as the economy slows for a period. What words of wisdom do you have for me to prepare myself emotionally when investing and or the economy become a little less exciting? Well, that's a fun question, John, and a great way to kick off Mailbag Week. You know, I think, first of all, investing has been exciting. Because when the stock market has risen, many of the last eight years, double digits, and that's just kind of compounded upon itself, admittedly after two of the worst market years in memory. So we kind of dug ourselves back out those first five years or so, and then we've gone on to some new highs since then. It is exciting. It is fun to think that checking the market on a given day, week, month, quarter, year, that you're going to see, I've made money. I'm rewarded. Look, I'm a, look, honey. Look how far we're up. Aren't you glad that we went back and added to Facebook in the downturn? Those kinds of thoughts and conversations, it's very natural to feel that this is exciting because this has been among the most exciting periods for any common stock investor, not just in my lifetime, but I think in the history of the American stock market. Very rarely have we had this kind of uplift measured over almost a decade. So, John, you're very right to ask yourself, well, what, what, what are things like when it isn't this way? Because the truth is, there are certainly times where the market not only goes sideways, but goes down, sometimes doggedly so, over the course of 18 or 36 months. So, your question, what words of wisdom do I have for you to prepare yourself emotionally when all this becomes a little less exciting? Here they are. And this is not personal. I'm having fun here. Get a life. And what I mean by that, John, is that there are so many things outside of the stock market and our investing to be excited about and to be doing. And when I say get a life to you or to me or to any of us, I'm just trying to convey that we shouldn't get too hung up checking our stocks. It's always great to see positive reinforcement and to know that it's not just an attaboy that the market gives you when your stock doubles, but it actually leads to real financial independence over time if you do well as an investor. That's the goal for most of us. But whether the markets are up or down, maybe especially when they're sideways or down, I think you and I start to realize we could spend our time in a lot more productive ways than just checking our stocks or following the market. I don't spend any time watching CNBC. I think the amount of time I've spent watching CNBC over the last three years probably rounds to below 30 minutes. And that even includes walking past an airport TV or a bar tuned into CNBC, perhaps. So I spend no time with financial television. But I sure do check my stocks, and I always have multiple times every single day. I've likened it 
to being a sports fan, you're not going to change your favorite team based on whether you're winning or losing, but darn it, isn't it fun to watch the games? To see, for example, as a baseball fan, where we have 162 games every year, almost every day to check in and see, watch the game itself, or check the box score, check the stats, not going to sell my favorite team. Realize we're going to have some winning streaks and some losing streaks, but isn't it fun to keep track of it? And it is, but there are many productive ways to spend our time outside of this. And I have to admit, anytime I talk to someone who likes sports less than I do, having just spent time in Iceland in the last week, and one of our guides and drivers, great guy, didn't even realize or care that Iceland's football team is headed to the World Cup, that they did so well in the Euro Finals a couple of years ago was kind of oblivious to it. And I said to him, Svenny, that was his nickname, his actual name is way longer than that and harder to pronounce, but I said, you have saved so much time over me by not paying too much attention to sports. And I'll say the same thing to anybody who's not following the markets too much. So, to conclude, John, I would say there are so many wonderful ways for you and me to spend time adding value to the lives of others and deeply enriching ourselves that when the market finally does go sideways or down, I hope you'll remember that I said that, and I bet you and I will be spending our time more productively during that time, ironically, than when the market's rising. All right, Rule Breaker mailbag item number two. This one comes from Hoboken Mike, at Mike underscore Hoboken. My producer, Rick Engdahl, and I had a little debate about how to pronounce the word H-O-B-O-K-E-N. We're pretty sure it's the one in New Jersey, and the thing with Rick arguing is that he lived in the city, so clearly he's going to be right. But I was saying, is it Hoboken? Hoboken? Hoboken. But we're going with Hoboken. No, no, we're going with Hoboken. That's it. Rick gives you the thumbs up. Okay, good. So, anyway, Mike, your question. Many podcasts ago, Mike writes, you mentioned a website you use to calculate split-adjusted returns. I can't locate that podcast with the website. Would greatly appreciate it if you could re-enlighten me. Thanks in advance. You bet, Mike. And it looks like it's still working. I think this is still a good website. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is this is not like Bloomberg that I'm giving you when I give out this URL. This is a smaller looks more like a homebrew circa 1990s almost web interface, but it's buyupside.com. B-U-Y, like buy and sell, buyupside.com. The tagline for the site is free information for the serious investor. And yes, I've bookmarked this one, Mike and all others, whether you're in Hoboken or somewhere else. And if you're ever looking for like, hey, how has Starbucks done since June 3rd, 1998, this is a good site where you can come in and see the returns. And yes, they're split adjusted, and I'm assuming, I sure hope they are, that they're accurate. I use it, and I would suggest you use it too. Particularly good for investors, that is, people who act by definition for the long term. This is a very valuable site for us, because we can see, like, how has Facebook done over the last 11 years, let's say, answering those kinds of questions, which are, to me, the most important and the most fun questions to answer of all. So, by buyupside.com is there for you, Mike, and all others. All right, mailbag item number three. I'm joined by a special guest, a multi-time cameo appearance guy on this show, David right. Kretzman. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me back, David. You and I partnered on the Gardner Kretzman Continuum in I, a past mailbag. I think it's still going strong. I don't know if I've seen many people share their score with us on Twitter, but hey, 
You and I can at least use it. You know, and David, maybe we're going to launch an appeal this week. Because while I have you here for mailbag item number three, I now realize that if you have a little extra time, hang around because there's at least one mailbag item after that that's directly relevant to you and to me. Oh, let's do it. Let's go after this one because I sent you the email from David Crichton. Yep. And when I saw David's mail, I thought two things. First of all, great question and a very common question about getting started investing. And number two, another Dave. Great name. I mean, so I'm Dave, and I had to have Dave, you, Dave, on the show to talk to Dave. And I'm going to resist the temptation to reread the Too Many Daves poem from Dr. Seuss, which I've done on this podcast before. But for anybody who doesn't know, just Google Too Many Daves, Dr. Seuss, and please enjoy that poem and think about mailbag item number three as you do it. A Dave-heavy week. I love it. It is, Dave. Good to have you on the show. So, I've got a question from Dave. All right. And I'm going to read it. Here we go. it. It starts this way, appropriately so. Dave, you often say that the goal when beginning a portfolio is to get to 20 stocks as quickly as possible. By the way, that's not necessarily exactly what I say, just to make it clear. I typically will say 15 stocks, and it's all contextual, but but our fellow Dave here has it generally right, directionally right. But I, I, I wouldn't want all of my listeners thinking, oh yeah, i got to get to 20, because that's what David always says. He goes on from there. I have $500 in my Fidelity account, and I'm ready and eager to put it to work. Awesome. I have my eye on a share of Intuitive Surgical. That's Ticker symbol ISRG, one of our favorite longtime rule breakers. I own some shares. Dave, do you own any ISRG? Unfortunately, I don't. I've missed this one. But hey, I I should probably look at starting a position. Well, you have a lot of stocks already, which we'll talk about a little (laughs) bit later. But but today, Dave goes on, it would be a $450 investment. That's right, because the stocks are around $450. So here's Dave with $500 in his Fidelity account looking at one share of Intuitive Surgical. He goes on to say, however, I could also split that $500 between several stocks at lower price points, or or I could save that money and then just add to it and, when able, let's say, buy a share of Amazon, which last I checked is trading more like $1,000 a share. So, So here's the situation, David. Since our friend Dave can only put about $100 to $200 a month toward investing at the moment, is it a better strategy to knock out larger cost stocks first? So, like buy one share of Amazon once you get to a thousand and then save to get to one share of Google, etc., which will take longer to do? Or should our friend Dave start with the lower cost ones and work his way up? He concludes by saying, I've been listening to all the Motley Fool podcasts for over two years now. I'm thrilled to finally be at a place where I can jump in. Thank you for all you and your team does. And we're thrilled for you, Dave, not just because you're a fellow Dave, but that you've gotten to the point where you're ready to invest. That's tremendous, because for a lot of us, just saving to get to that point is the hardest of all. So, David Kretzman, as you hear Dave's story, your reactions? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, it kind of reflects the situation we're in today, where I think it seems like fewer great companies are splitting their shares, which on one hand is great because it shows that they're not so focused on the stock price. But on the other hand, for us smaller retail investors, it can mean you know we have to think a little bit harder about how much we're allocating to these companies because it, it takes a lot more to buy a single share in some cases. In this situation, uh, it, it does depend on your context. And I think what we'll talk about today, there, there are a couple other options for how you can go about buying shares. Uh, There are some brokerages out there where you can actually buy fractional shares or partial shares. So, that would mean, in this case, you can invest a flat amount, $50, $100, $200, regardless of the share price, and still get exposure to an Amazon or an Intuitive Surgical. 
stocks where you might have a little bit harder time buying one or two shares. Right. And the way that works, David, as I understand it, I don't use a brokerage that has that, but I've always loved that feature. And I know a bunch of Motley Fool members have started that way. The way it works, I think, is that, you know, let's say we take your $50 and my $50 and Dave's $50. So we're at $150 and we're taking some other $50. And finally, as a brokerage, we can buy a share. And then we just say, well, you own one tenth of it and you own one twelfth of it. And so you just kind of allocate fractionally to all of your customers how much they own of each each share. Yeah, essentially the the way that I understand it, I don't know all the technicals of it, but you're essentially like like you mentioned, pulling money together with other people who are buying fractional shares of a certain security or stock. And then that way you still have exposure. And I think it's like you might think about that, it's like, oh, do I really want to only own one sixteenth of Amazon, and of course, what what counts isn't the number of shares that you own or the fraction of shares that you own. The the dollar amount is what counts because exactly. whether or not whether or not you own one share or a tenth of a share, if it doubles, your your money is still going to double. That's right. If you have two hundred dollars in and it doubles, you'll make two hundred dollars more. Exactly. So you want to focus on the dollar amount invested. And I think Dave is thinking about that in the right way. So a couple brokerages out there that you might want to consider. Uh, one is Stockpile. This is a company that some of you might be familiar with. This is a company that, in the past couple of years, has popularized stock gift cards. So, essentially, giving someone $50 of Disney for Christmas or something, just a flat amount that you can give to someone. The commissions are cheap. I think it's $0.99 cents per trade. So, realistically, there, you could invest as little as $25 or $50 into a company. I don't think you can invest in all several thousand publicly traded companies in the US, but any of the big name companies out there, you could probably buy shares with stockpiles. So that might be one option you want to look at um, to, to get started initially. Another one out there that I believe still exists is uh, ShareBuilder, although now it's under the umbrella of Capital One. This is actually how I got started 12 or 13 years ago when I first started as an investor. And what they do, uh, at least at the time, and I think they still have this fee structure where you could submit flat dollar amount trades on Tuesdays and pay $4 to buy a, a flat amount of a stock. So that, that's another way where you can invest a flat amount, uh, get exposure to some of these companies, even if you don't have enough money to buy a whole share. You're not timing your way in in any precise manner with this kind of approach to investing, but that suits us as investors anyway, because yep. the long-term returns are all that really matter. We don't need to necessarily pick our price to the penny at a certain minute of the day. So yeah, as they pool our money together, often they're just like buying once a day and just fulfilling customers' needs that way. Exactly. And something else to keep in mind, Stockpile at this point, they don't support retirement accounts. So, this would just be for your individual taxable account. So, Dave, I don't know if in your particular situation, if that money is within, say, an IRA with Fidelity, which might make it a little bit trickier to switch over to another brokerage. I believe with ShareBuilder under Capital One, you can buy partial shares within a retirement account. So, that's just something else to keep in mind. What type of account you're going to be buying shares in. Another uh, popular brokerage out there, especially for younger folks these days, is Robinhood. Now, you can't buy partial shares with Robinhood, but they do charge zero commissions. So, for, for me, that, that's becoming my go-to individual taxable account, because the, the app is, is just so seamless. It's a great user experience, and it's just kind of nice to, to not be paying uh, commissions as you build up positions. So, those are a few options for you. And I would say, if you're if you've listened to all of this and you're still at the point where, well, I have an account with Fidelity or one of these established brokerages, and I don't really feel like either transferring my brokerage to 
or my account to another brokerage, or I don't really feel like buying partial shares, then I would say one one approach, and David, curious to get your thoughts on this, mm-hmm. would just be to rank uh, companies based on which, which companies you want to own over the next five years. Just prioritize a list of companies. So it might be Amazon, Google, Intuitive Surgical. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking a few months to, to build up a position or build up enough money to accumulate one share of any of those dip, given companies. But just think about which companies... Would I be happy to own if the stock market wouldn't trade for five years? <laughs> yeah, and 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 just rank companies that way and build up positions over time. So a few different ways you can approach it. I like that a lot, David. And so thank you. And so Dave, I hope that that's been helpful. And I agree with my friend Dave that there are more than one way to win this game. So a lot of younger people are starting with something like Robinhood because it's no commission cost at all. It's right off your mobile phone. Very attractive to many people. On the other hand, um, if you could move your $500 from Fidelity to a place like Stockpile or Cap One Share Builder, if it's still happening, where you could buy fractional shares, I think that that's a great way to take that first $500 you have and buy 10 stocks. $50 worth of each, and start with the portfolio. And there's no doubt a third and a fourth way right there. But we wanted to give you some options and let you know. And it's great to hear from David Kretzman because he was where you were 12 years ago when he started that way. And, and really, the purpose of The Motley Fool is to help the world invest better and for a lot of us to get you started. So I hope that was helpful. All right. Now, before we go to Rule Breaker, mailbag, item number four, two things. First of all, David, you've assured me that you will hang around for this second point. Glad to do it, Dave. Excellent. And. I have my ad read, but it's not an ad read this month. It's off the top of my head. We didn't actually have a formal advertiser scheduled for this week. So, this episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by shop.fool.com. Admittedly, not one of the world's largest e-commerce sites, but in some ways, among a motley few, one of the most beloved. So, if you wanted something that would connect you more deeply with the five podcasts that The Motley Fool cranks out every single week, has been doing so for years. In fact, we were doing podcasts before they were cool. Check it. Go back, look at the history. Our guy, Chris Hill, said, hey, let's just start doing podcasts. And I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the year was 1983, around it to 19. I mean, we were doing this a long time ago. David, what year were you born? 92. Amazing. So, nine years before David Kressman existed, I think we were doing podcasts. If you are moved by that fake news, you probably should come to shop.fool.com, buy a mug, buy a shirt, get a better shipping fee than you were paying a few weeks ago before Chris renegotiated. Join us, join the rebellion, join the movement, the revolution, shop.fool.com. Rulebreaker mailbag item number four. And this one comes from Paul Spangler, writing in from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Dave. After trying to figure out the stock market on my own for a couple of months, I found The Motley Fool subscribed to Stock Advisor, Rule Breakers, and Hidden Gems. I'm happy to say I've had some amazing results and have seen some of my stocks grow over 200%, like Shopify, Silicon Valley Bank, Financial, Align Technology, a couple of Rule Breakers that we love in that list, and a couple more over 100%, like Match Group, PayPal, Atlassian, Marriott, NVIDIA, Netflix. I recently started listening to the Motley Fool Money and Rule Breakers podcasts on my commute to work and to school for my MBA degree. 
I'm enjoying my MBA classes even more now because the way in which you discuss companies, their performance metrics, and strategies is almost exactly what I'm learning about through case studies and class discussion, which is pretty cool. I'm crossing my fingers. I get chosen for one of the mailbag readings on your podcasts. So here it goes. And ka-ching, you sure did, Paul. Here it goes. Here's my problem. He writes, I have major FOMO. I think a lot of us recognize that acronym these days. David? Fear of missing out. Indeed. When it comes to investing in stocks, Paul goes on, it seems like almost every stock recommendation from the Motley Fool Service is appealing to me in some way, shape, or form. And being a 31-year-old focusing on saving for my future and growing my investment portfolio over time, I'm open to some of the more high-risk, high-reward stocks. In a previous podcast, and this is an allusion to the Gardner Kretzman Continuum okay, podcast, David, excellent. which is why I'm so glad you're here with me today. In a previous podcast, Paul says, you mentioned that a good rule of thumb would be to own a number of stocks close to your age. So, by that quotes rule, I should own around 30 stocks. I counted up my total number of individual stocks that I own and discovered that I'm invested in 80, Oof. 80, 80. Wow different companies, which is far more than I have time to keep tabs on and really dig into outside of the Motley Fool updates. On the one hand, I know I have probably too many stocks, but on the other, if I hadn't invested in a lot of these companies I'd never even heard of then, I would have missed out on some great returns. Hence, my fear of missing out. So, what is the foolish thing to do now in my situation? Should I narrow down my companies to 30 that I like? And if so, how do I go through the process of thinning out my portfolio? I've been more inclined to buy a new stock, let's say $1,000 at a time, than I am to reinvest in a stock I already own that's already done well. So, how do I resist the urge to invest in a new company? Thanks in advance for any advice you may have on this. Thanks for creating such a great community of fools, etc., etc. Paul Spangler. David, of the Kretzman portion of the Continuum's fame, David, what do you think? Well, I actually am closer to Paul's situation. I think, as we talked about on our Gardner Kretzman Continuum podcast, I probably own 70, 75 stocks now. I probably actually added a few more since our last podcast. And I'm 25. So the way I look at it is you can own a lot of stocks, but what really counts is your allocation to your core holdings. So I've been trying to focus more on something, David, that you talk about adding to your winners. Because I think, as Paul highlighted, it can be easier to buy something new than add to something that you already own, especially something that's gone up. So I'm trying to focus more on portfolio allocation that way. So, in a sense, you can own 70 or 80 stocks, but you're still heavily concentrated in your top 10 or 15 ideas. And I refer back to Peter Lynch, the famed investing mutual fund manager of Fidelity Magellan in the 80s, an incredible track record. And people would joke that Peter Lynch never found a stock that he didn't like. I think at one point he owned over a thousand stocks in Fidelity Magellan. So he owned hundreds of stocks at least. So by the Gardner Kretzman continuum, Lynch he was, breaking was, that rule. He was a Methuselah. He was breaking the rule, David. He was a thousand years old. <laughs> he might be. That might be the, uh, might be the secret. So. And I think he, I think Peter Lynch approached it in a similar way, where if he found a company that he was intrigued by and wanted to follow, he would buy a little bit, and he didn't necessarily need to establish a full position. And of course, the the performance of the fund would still be driven largely by the top ten or fifteen or twenty holdings. So I kind of approach building my portfolio the same way. I think, especially if you are at a younger age, you have decades ahead of you to invest and accumulate positions over time in your favorite companies. So I don't think you necessarily need to worry so much about fine tuning your portfolio. 
portfolio uh-huh. right away if you're 25 or 30 or even 40 or 45, because you still have decades in front of you to invest and build that portfolio. And once again, one Dave to another. I think we agree on this. And one thing I want to make clear to Paul and everybody listening is the Gardner-Kretzmann continuum. First of all, if you don't know the GKC, if this is an acronym or a concept that's alien to you, just page back a few weeks in this podcast and you'll see and be able to hear it in its original form. But I think both of the Daves here agree that if you're 31 years old like Paul Spangler and you're inspired to think you should have about 31 stocks, that's not a maximum. You can certainly go and have 80 stocks, or in my case, I have 55 stocks and I'm 52 years old. But I don't think there's any upside number, really. I think a lot of it is just, do you like what you own? Are you happy the way you're invested in? Do you have time? Do you feel like you have the time to keep up? And if you don't have the time to keep up, do you have a trusted source? Let's say, in this case, maybe the Motley Fool that's keeping up for you, allowing you to own whatever size of portfolio you want to. Yeah, absolutely. And and for me, it really helped uh, finding a tool like personal capital is what I personally use, where it'll, it'll essentially aggregate all your holdings from all your accounts. And you can easily see your total allocation to different stocks across your accounts. Because I think in my case, between my retirement accounts, my 401k, my individual accounts with right. four or five different brokers, it was hard to keep track of what I owned, how much I owned, and where I owned it. But with a, a tool like personal capital, I think there are some others out there that Really, for free, they'll aggregate those accounts, show you the allocations. For me, that that's really helped from a portfolio management perspective to think, oh, I, I feel like I should have more exposure to company A or B, or maybe I have a little bit too much concentration in this one company. Maybe I'll hold back on uh, adding to that one. So I would encourage you, especially when you have so many stocks, find some sort of tool, even if you do a spreadsheet on your own, just to get a sense for what your allocations are across the board. All right, great. So that let's tie a bow on rule breaker mailbag item number four. We have five, six, and seven. And as I look them over here with time running out, I see there's a lot of similarities between these. So, David, if you're kind enough, will you hang around the microphone a little bit longer? I'd be honored, Dave. Great. So I'm just going to share these and we'll just kind of keep the conversation going. And obviously, a big theme of this week's podcast is how many stocks should you have in your portfolio? What about fear of missing out? A lot of these dynamics. Mailbag item number five, a quick tweet. This one from at Chad Huggins. One Chad wrote, David, you have around 200 active stock recommendations. That's true. When you add together all my stock picks in Stock Advisor and all my stock picks in Rule Breakers, and you sum them and you call that the Supernova Universe, which is what I call it because we have Motley Fool Supernova, which is a service that invests exclusively in all of my picks, it comes to about 200 stocks. So Chad goes on but you only have 55 stocks in your personal portfolio. What is your portfolio strategy? Personally, I have a hard time not investing in every great company I learn about. So I think we're hearing some more FOMO going on here, David. Maybe part of the consequence of being a Motley Fool fan and owning some of our services is because we tend to keep streaming ideas. People hear something like, I that sounds good to me. I'll buy that one too. Yeah, it's something I, I personally have run into where you know I'll come across a company, I get really excited about it. It's like, oh, I want to own a little piece of this. And I think the beauty of brokerages like Robinhood, uh, you can own just a, a couple shares of a, of a stock that's trading for you know $35 or $50. You can start small. And then for me, having that skin in the game, it motivates me and encourages me to follow the story over time and then maybe just build a position up over time as I have the means and interest uh, to do so. So there are different ways you have to do it. I feel like you don't need to be at a point where you have to jump in with a full 
starter position right away. You can start small and just follow the story and build it out over time. Absolutely. Side note, David, did you know that Robinhood these days is being financed at a multi-billion dollar valuation? It's an impressive company. I've actually listened to uh, a pod- several podcasts with uh, the co-founder and CEO of the company, and man, that, that's one of the companies at the top of my list I wish was public. It didn't start too long ago either. I think the company's something like Five years old, or something, some insane number where they have just launched with a free mobile app, getting people to start investing, which we love here at The Motley Fool, and really parlaying that into a significant business. Yeah, and I think so far they already have several million people signed up with accounts there, really uh, focused on that millennial audience. I think the average age of their users is something like 25. But really, a powerful business model. This is kind of a, a tangent, but looking at Charles Schwab, uh, you know, a popular brokerage account that started in the '70s. When they started out, the average age of their account holders was about 25. Today, the average age is about 55 or so. So I think this sounds like me. Keep I mean, going. There you go. I think you'll see something similar with Robinhood because, as we know, these platforms are very sticky once you open an account uh, with these different companies. And I think Robinhood has just done such an incredible job at capturing that younger millennial audience. I suspect that that whole crowd will grow with them over time, and they plan to offer more and more different banking and financial services over time. So they're certainly not going to stop with stocks or cryptocurrencies. Mm. They'll they'll keep going far beyond. Rule breaker mailbag item number six. This is probably my favorite note of the month. So thank you, Kurt Elia, for this note. Hi, David. One of the things I love about investing is that, as Yogi Berra once said, ninety percent of the game is half mental, or to put it in Buffett's words, it's an easy game if you can control your emotions. And so Kurt writes, anytime I notice a potential mind hack that can lead to better results, I get curious. As I listen to your April 18th podcast on five stocks that I own that you should too. I was struck by your comment that all of the five stock samplers you've presented over the past three years have handily beaten the market. If memory serves, your accuracy rate, that would be your percentage of winners against losers, has tended to be better for those picks than your overall average as well. And there are only rarely any stocks that have actually lost money in them. Even for someone with your great track record, that is beyond impressive. And I think I've said many times before, Kurt, thank you. It's beyond lucky as well. There's no way we can possibly keep this remarkable streak going, but as long as it is, hashtag RBI streak. All right, so Kurt goes on. This got me to reflect on the fact that the small group of stocks that I have helped my 13 year old son pick for his portfolio, which is a subset, Kurt writes, of my own set of about 50 stocks, routinely beats my own portfolio in the market. I'm always careful when I pick the stocks for my son's portfolio, but when I have to look at my son and suggest that he put his hard-earned cash behind a company, perhaps it's bringing out a bit of extra diligence or stock-picking wisdom in me. You mentioned that the new batch of stocks that you picked was for your fellow North Carolina alumni at an event. While not the same thing as picking stocks for a family member or friend, I'm guessing the dynamic was similar, as you narrowed down the list to share with your fellow Tar Heels. To conclude, Kurt writes, And so, it got me thinking. Is there something to this? When we're forced to boil down all of our stocks to a small number of the best ones, to advise people we care about, does this discipline actually lead to better performance, or is this just an illusion based on survivorship bias in our own portfolio? Thanks for all the good that you and the fool continue to do for the world, and for all the fun it leads to along the way. Fool on, Kurt. Well, I love that note, David, because the truth is that when I think about my own dynamic of picking five stock samplers on this podcast, or investing for my kids or for my wife's portfolio, typically 
I've created a better portfolio for my wife than my own portfolio. We have separate portfolios. Of course, we've been together 27 plus years. I think we think of them all as one, but the truth is that she has hers and I have mine, and she's outperformed. And I'm picking all the stocks for her portfolio. And when I give speeches, I stand up in front of people and I say, here are seven stocks that I like. I'm going to make seven points. I'm going to tag a stock to each of them. And those have typically done really well. A good example was when I spoke to Conscious Capitalism in the year 2012. I picked 10 stocks in front of the Conscious Capitalism crowd that year. And in fact, the caps page is CC 2012 Culture, because I was picking companies based on great cultures. And those 12 companies have, on average, outperformed the market over these six years by 396 percentage points, which is hugely better than how I would normally have done with any of my own portfolios. So, I think that there really is something to this, David. Do you, have you found that you're investing for anybody else in your family or friends so far? I know you're a younger guy. Or is it just your own portfolio? No, I, I think that does bring an extra element of discipline. Like You really want to be sure you're focusing on quality ideas. I help run my mom's uh, Retirement account. So, in that case, it's like, okay, I want to really be sure I'm bringing the, the cream of the crop to her portfolio. So, I think there is something to that. I really do too. And I think it's a great point, Kurt. And I'm going to remember that because I think that should be memed. If that's not already a meme, that should be. So, I don't know if the Elia phenomenon will quite rise to the status of the Gardner Kretzmann continuum, but the Elia phenomenon, I think, is real. I think so. All right, and that takes us to our final mailbag item. And as I said, it's kind of one ongoing conversation. So let's just keep it going here to close this week with Stephen Aspros, who wrote in this way Dear David, I've been somewhat of a fool since first reading your book, The Motley Fool Investment Guide, back in the late 1990s. I found your concepts on stock investing interesting, but wasn't sold on your philosophy. Until a few years ago, I became an early subscriber to your services, gradually adding more of your services. I'd pick and choose from your top recommendations, add those to my broker's more conservative stock choices. Foolishly, that's with a small f, I never totally fully committed to your philosophy, nor any of its missions as specifically instructed, and I got burned badly purchasing large stakes in stocks such as Amborella and Chipotle, which are rule breakers with mixed results over these years. Some great and some horrible for both of those companies. However, Steve goes on, when I sold my business two years ago, I decided to try a foolish investing experiment. I took the $180,000 in my wife's IRA, and I bought 36 of my favorite Motley Fool recommendations, $5,000 a stock. I would buy and not sell. I wanted to see which ones really threw off the most profit. I wanted a larger sample size, because I kept picking your losers while the winners were killing it. Well, what happened, Steve writes, blew me away. Stocks that I never would have bought turned out to be the biggest winners. Companies like Align Technologies, up 182%. To You, up 187%. And Shopify, up 163%. Amazingly, the only stock in the red was Kinder Morgan. The portfolio is up 69% over the two years. So, after all that, my question is, do I have too many stocks to be really foolish? Does the mutual fund nature of this portfolio make it too spread out to hit real home runs on stocks like the ones just referenced? I love your podcast, Steve. Closes. David, we might sound like a broken record here, but do you want to add a thought into the cauldron here before we say goodbye? Well, I think the answer to Steve's question here is no. I don't think you have too many stocks. I think especially the longer your time horizon, the less the number of stocks you own matters. 
Because even if you own a little bit of a future multi-bagger, 10-bagger, 20-bagger, 30-bagger, a little bit is all you need. That's a quote from Tom Engel, TMF1000, a beloved longtime Motley Fool contributor. He says, if a company is going to be the next big thing, a little bit is all you need to own. And if it's going to be a dud, a little bit is all you need. You'll be glad you only had a little bit. And I think there really is something to that, because even though I invested a small amount in Netflix and as part of the first batch of stocks I bought 13 years ago, it's still the largest holding in my portfolio today. And uh, I mean, it's just been a staggering performer, like well over 100 bagger now, thanks to you, David, and your recommendations. So, starting with a small amount or investing a flat amount across multiple companies, if you can hold those companies for 10 plus years, I think that's that's a great capital F foolish approach. When we think of what Kurt Elia talked about, about how we tr- we typically will do better for our family members than for ourselves. Sounds like that might have just happened right here. It was illustrated. It's kind of funny to think that Steve took his wife's IRA and just sort of threw it out into the fool stock. <laughs> They're not his own, but look how she's done. And Steve, I bet you did well selling your business, but 69% is an awfully good return for this two-year period. Oh, yeah. So, I think a lot of the lessons that have come through this week's podcast are implicit in that final mailbag item. And I agree with David. Stephen, I don't think that you have too many stocks. And I don't think anybody needs to think they have too many stocks, unless you find yourself stressed out about that and you want to thin it down. But I don't think there's any convincing math to me that suggests that we should have smaller, not larger portfolios, or that there's some cutoff that you shouldn't go beyond, unless it's something that you feel yourself in your own time management and any anxiety or not that you'll have. So Anyway, David Kretzman, thank you for your prolonged contribution. I only asked you in for one point, but we had so much fun, I was delighted to have you with us. Always fun, David. Thanks so much. All right, and thank you for joining us this week. Next week, we're going to kick off June with Stock Stories. I think that's volume two of our ongoing series, telling some memorable stories around some of the dynamic stock experiences that we've had as investors. I'm sure I'll have some of my foolish friends in and share our stock stories with you. In the meantime, fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.